Today we're returning to our series in the Gospel of John, which we paused in June last year. Uh, And John's Gospel is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the Bible. And it's quite a scene that was read for us by Naomi, wasn't it? It's quite a scene to behold. And what strikes me most about this scene that we're going to look at today is that though Jesus is the one who is being betrayed and arrested, he, out of all the people there, is the one who's in the most control. He's not phased or caught off guard. The scene doesn't play out as expected, certainly not from the human point of view. This arrest is different because this man is different. When we look at this moment of Jesus' life, this dark moment, as the world turns against him, its own creator, and starts the process of his destruction, he is still the one who has total authority. He is not flustered because he knows that it must be done. Though he has power to stop it, he doesn't use that power for himself, but instead to lay his life down for you and for me. Now, as background, I should explain a little bit about John's gospel itself. It was written by one of Jesus' closest friends and followers called John, funnily enough. And that's important to note early on because it's an eyewitness account. John was there when these things took place. And the account was written after Jesus returned to heaven, roughly, scholars suggest, between 70 and 90 AD, something like that. Now, John's account of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is deemed fairly unique compared to the other gospel uh, accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All have the same central subject, Jesus Christ. All present Jesus as the one who died to save sinners and the one who rose again. But the four Gospels, they do have different emphases regarding the ministry of Jesus. They focus on different aspects of him and what he did while he was here on earth. So what we have to understand is that all four of the Gospel accounts work together to provide a a complete understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. And all four Gospels have the same goal that we might believe in him, in Jesus Christ. Which means much more than just believing he exists, that it's not just some fairy story. It's not about coming to church regularly or occasionally reading the Bible to yourself. All nice things, but that's not what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ means to consciously come to a place in your life where you personally and actively trust that he is the Son of God. That he came from heaven as God in the flesh and died to take the punishment for your personal sin, though he committed no sin himself. And then he then rose again, defeating our enemies, sin and death and the devil, and that Jesus has the power to forgive the sin of all those who give their lives to him, all those who have chosen to repent of their own sin and have turned from it and now live solely for him and follow him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ or to become one of his followers. Now, John, in his gospel account, states specifically that this is his goal for you and for me who are reading his writing. He states it very clearly here in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Messiah means God's rescuing king. So John has written all of this stuff down for us to understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and God's rescuing 
king. Now, John's account of Jesus' life puts much more emphasis on Jesus' deity than all of the other gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all present Jesus as divine too, of course, but it's John's gospel that includes the most conversations and sayings of Jesus on the subject. And our passage today of Jesus' arrest shows us a glimpse of this, doesn't it? And it's why John's account of Jesus' arrest is slightly different to the other accounts, not hugely but subtly different. We haven't got time to properly compare the other gospel accounts of Jesus' arrest to John's, but I would encourage you to do that because it's a very interesting study because they focus on slightly different details and it therefore paints, when you bring them all together, it paints quite a complete picture of what's going on at Jesus' arrest. It's like four people who are called to be witnesses to a crime they'd seen taking place. They would all have the basic premise, the basic understanding, but would likely pick out and notice slightly different details. And I think that actually adds credibility to the gospel accounts that they pick out subtly different things because different people pick up different details. But let me just mention, for example, John's account, it doesn't mention Jesus separating Peter, James, and John from the other disciples in the garden. John doesn't mention how Jesus prays to God the Father several times in anguish at the prospect of what's about to happen to him, where, where his sweat is like great drops of blood. He doesn't mention how an angel came to strengthen him. We all find that information out from Luke. John also doesn't mention the details of Judas Iscariot greeting Jesus with a kiss, identifying Jesus as the one to arrest. Also, Jesus heals the man whose ear is cut off by Peter. It's Luke, funnily enough, the doctor who tells us that Jesus healed the man. John also doesn't include the words of Jesus when he rebukes Peter for his sword play, where he says to Peter that the father would send angels to intervene, should he ask. That's in Matthew's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, we hear that the disciples actually fled and left Jesus. John doesn't mention any of those details, but John is the only account that includes this scene that we've read today. Why? Remember what John is trying to get across to us. This man is God in the flesh. Look at how, even at his own arrest, he is in control. He is calling the shots. He is giving the orders. He's in charge, whilst also simultaneously letting others have charge of him. John is trying to tell us something about God here. What God is like, how he uses power to love and serve others. There are three things I would like us to consider today from this passage. Firstly, Jesus' calm control. Secondly, Jesus' caring commitment. And then finally, Jesus' cup to consume. These are the three things I want us to reflect on briefly this afternoon. But before we get into the first point, let me just set the scene a little bit for us. It's Thursday night. Judas is gone. Jesus and his other 11 disciples have shared their last meal together before his crucifixion. They've now left the upper room, which likely would have been in the upper city of Jerusalem. And there's a map on the screen roughly indicating the possible route that Jesus would have taken. Jesus has finished praying as our passage uh, starts in John chapter 18. He's led the disciples on a walk down to the Kidron Valley, just outside the eastern city wall of Jerusalem. And they've entered into a garden, and more specifically, they've entered into an orchard called Gethsemane at the west shoulder of the Mount of Olives. And there's a picture going to be up on the screen of what that looks like today. Jesus, as our passage says, has spent a lot of time there with his disciples. It was a familiar place for him and for them. And Judas Iscariot, who has chosen to betray Jesus, 
And as our passage says, knew the place well, he's leading the group to this spot. Within the group that Judas is leading are officials and their Jewish police sent out on behalf of the Jewish religious elite of the time, the chief priests and the Pharisees. But there's also a group of Roman soldiers, a detachment of Roman soldiers, which verse 12 tells us in our passage, has a commander. Now, a detachment of soldiers could range between 200 and 1,000 Roman soldiers. It was a big group. It must have been a big group if their commander was there, which John specifically notices. So it's quite a group being led by Judas to arrest Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is being met with here. And yet, despite all of what's about to happen, my first point is this. Jesus is calmly in control. When you look at what's happening here, we see at one level this event is something happening to Jesus, but you also get the strong sense that this is something that he is still in charge of. Though Judas has betrayed him and brought this group to arrest him, it's Jesus who offers himself to them. Let me read again verses 2 to 9 for us. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, uh, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Do you notice in the whole scene, Jesus is the one who is in charge. He offers himself, and he even makes an order to the arresting officers that the disciples go free. Jesus isn't surprised here. He knows what's coming. He even sent Judas out to start the process of betrayal in John chapter 13. And we learn from the other gospel accounts of Jesus in Gethsemane that he's been praying about what's about to happen to him. This isn't something or someone who's surprised by the situation. In fact, this is someone volunteering himself. He goes out to meet the group and asks them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. He gives himself up. This is someone who is calmly content with what's happening. But then we read something that only John records in his gospel. Something that is a major plot point of John's gospel. Jesus, he's not just a teacher or a healer or a prophet. Not even just God's king come to save us, no. He's God come in the flesh. Why do I say that? I say that because of what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am he. Although he doesn't say that. Because it's widely agreed that the he there was inserted by specialists and translators. What Jesus actually says is, I am. In Greek, I am is ego imi, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew personal name of God himself. It was the name revealed by God almost 1,400 years earlier to his servant Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament. At the time where Moses was being sent by God to save Israel from Egypt and slavery in Egypt, and he asked God, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them that I am sent you. 
It's the name God uses a lot in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. So what Jesus is saying when he says, I am, is that he is taking on the name of God and he's applying it to himself. And if you read John closely, you'll see that Jesus does this a lot to get across who he really is. There's a table there on the screen of the occurrences of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. But the occurrence here of the the divine name is profound because when Jesus says, I am, what happens? They fall on their backs. They have a moment of being completely out of control. They have a moment of being unsteady on their feet. And they cannot stand in the presence of the man who is revealing himself to be God in flesh. I am. So many times through scripture you read of people who when they encounter God, they are brought into his presence and they fall on their knees. They fall on their faces. They fall on their backs because of the awesomeness of standing in the midst of their very creator. Whether it's Ezekiel and the prophet, um, Ezekiel chapter 1, or the priests in the temple in 2 Chronicles 5, or Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6, or, or passages in Daniel, or in Acts, or in Revelation, we see that when people come into the very presence of God, they fall to the ground in awe, and in wonder, and in terror. And we have here Jesus, God the Son, even at his lowest moment, this King of Kings is completely in control of the situation, he commands it all. And shows again a bit of his divine glory, just a glimpse of it, before laying it aside once again to pick up a cross. Even in his own humiliation and sacrifice, he is owning it all. And he let this group take him and beat him. He gets tried and condemned by corrupt courthouses and corrupt men. And he gets mocked and laughed at and spat upon and nailed to a wooden post. The King of Kings, God in flesh, the I Ham, who brought forth all of life and all of breath, according to Colossians chapter 1, gives up his own life and breath, willingly offering himself. This scene, the soldiers, those arresting Jesus, they're just background characters. Jesus stands in their midst, and the utterance of his very name brings them to their knees. This is God's power being displayed. And even in the darkest and most troubling of scenes, from one point of view, from God's sight and will, he is in total control. This is all part of the unfolding mystery of God saving the world through the sacrifice of himself. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, submitting to the plan and the will of his Father. He obeys and he steps forward. Even in his own death, Jesus is in total control. He trusts the Father's will. And my first question for us all this afternoon, as a reflection of Jesus' control, is that do we believe in the calm control of Jesus in our lives? Do we really believe it? Do we really trust that Jesus is in control? Do we really trust God's will for our lives? That no matter what is going on, we believe that the resurrected and ascended Jesus sees all of what's going on. He understands what's going on. He knows all about it. He knew it was coming, and he can provide the help and strength you and I need to get through it. Does our behavior declare that we believe that to be true? Do our prayer lives back that belief? Do our reactions to interruptions or crises in life back that belief? 
Do our words and actions to others back that belief? Do our inner thoughts, what we say to ourselves, back that belief? Does the way we speak to others back that belief? Jesus is in control. Does the way we handle our finances back that belief? That how we approach tests or assessments or exams back that belief? Our approach to job changes or job losses or pay cuts back that belief? Of who is in governmental authority over us, does it back that belief? Our approach of preparing for the future, back that belief. Our understanding of God's timing, back that belief. Jesus is in control. Do we really believe that? You may be in a situation in your life where you have no idea what's going on or why it's happening. Jesus doesn't ask you to understand. He asks you to trust that he's in control. I read this week these words, the circumstances that we ask God to change in our lives are often the circumstances God is using to change us. The circumstances we ask God to change are often the circumstances God is using to change us. Jesus can be trusted with your life, every aspect of it. He can be trusted. We need to learn to trust his calm control. Our second point, Jesus' caring commitment. After Jesus lets these guys get back up and compose themselves, our text says this. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Those words are from John chapter 6. For me, the next stunning aspect of this section is that Jesus thought not of himself, but his friends. The ones who we learn in other gospel accounts have just been sleeping while he's been praying. If the first point that we've looked at is Jesus showing the power and the majesty of God, the second point is him showing the heart and the compassion of God, his commitment to you and to me. You want me, Jesus says. Let these men go. Jesus has just displayed the smallest glimpses of his divine power and authority, but Jesus doesn't use his power for the sake of himself, but for the sake of others. And this is the heart of God, divine power exercised through self-sacrifice. This is what power looks like to God, sacrifice, not advancement. This is the upside-down kingdom that Jesus is the leader of. He doesn't use power or authority like the world uses it out of sheer love for his friends, friends who are arrogant and argumentative and slow, friends who he knows who are about to flee and leave him, and in Peter's case, deny him. He loves them. You want me, he says. Let these men go. This is the good shepherd in action all over again, putting the sheep before himself. He protects them. He puts himself between them and the enemy. He lets the darkness fall on him. He draws the full enmity of the enemy to himself in order to deflect it from us. And you all know where I'm going with this. We talk about the word gospel all the time. This is effectively the gospel in these words. You are looking for me. Let these men go. 
Jesus, the God-man, demonstrates the fullest extent of God's love for broken people, for sinful people, by letting us go free and him taking the punishment for our sin. This is the love Jesus has for you. Let me take this punishment for you. This is the heart of God, the servant nature of our creator. But what is all the more astonishing about this is not just God's love for you and for me, but that Jesus said earlier on in the Gospel of John that those of us who have received that love by accepting Jesus, that that love should characterize how we live and how we interact. That's the love the Holy Spirit is seeking to grow in you and in me. And that should impact everything we do, particularly how we deal with each other as followers of Christ. How we talk about each other as brothers and sisters, how we treat one another, what we say about each other when the other one is not in the room how we submit to one another, how we provide for each other, how we support and encourage and even challenge each other when we see someone in sin. Jesus spoke these words just after he had washed his disciples' feet, don't forget. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And again, at the moment of his arrest, Jesus is laying down the standard of love he expects from us, his followers. Is love what you and I are known for? Does Jesus' love for us in taking our arrest and our punishment and our cross, sacrificing himself, does that impact everything we do? Everything we say? everything we think. Do we actively and intentionally love like Jesus did? Do we love our church brothers and sisters like this? Do we love our church ministry leaders like this? Do we love our church elders like this? Let me keep going. Do we love our spouses like this? Do we love our children like this? Do we love our parents like this? Our bosses or co-workers like this? Our friends like this? What about the brothers and sisters in the room that we struggle with? That we don't click with? Do we love them like this? Would we take a cross for each other? Let me phrase it slightly differently. Are you and I actively pursuing the goodness and the flourishing of every brother and sister in Christ that we know? including those we struggle with. That's the standard Jesus is asking. Are we sacrificing each other? Are we even prepared to do so? Are we living out the words of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? That's saying that out of awe and respect for Jesus Christ, you and I should be willing to submit to each other and to serve one another. Our church community should not be characterized by gossip or slander or backbiting or divisions or power struggles or impatience or going behind people's backs or usurping people's authority. Christ's love should compel you and compel me to love and serve each other, to sacrifice. And that includes sacrificing ego, how people see us, or viewing things as yours and mine. Instead, actively serving one another, looking out for each other, 
using the power God has given us, if you like, to sacrificially serve each other out of love. That is the model Jesus has set. Are we using the gifts and the skills and the abilities and the time and the money, all of these things that God has given to you and me that we might love each other in the church, that we might benefit and see the flourishing of our brothers and sisters? 1 John 3 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has a tear of possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Are all of our dealings with each other motivated by this love? Are all of our meetings and conversations motivated by this love? All of my thoughts toward people in the church motivated by this love? And if not, we need to ask for more of God in our lives, for more of his spirit to change and transform us, because it's only God who is love who can grow that inside of us. But you have to let him, and you have to want to. You have to ask him to pour more of himself into you, that through the Holy Spirit, you and I will be filled to the brim with God's love. And he will do it if you ask him. But sometimes we're too afraid. Sometimes we're too comfortable. We need to ask him, and he'll do it. This love, of course, brings us to the final point. Brings us to those words in verse 11. Our last point is this, Jesus' cup to consume. Verse 10 to 14 says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. You've got to love Peter, haven't you? Through the gospel accounts, we learn that Peter is a little outspoken, he's a little brash, and perhaps doesn't think much before he speaks or acts. He normally has a really high moment, and then it's met fairly quickly with a bit of a low moment. But do you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that Jesus, after Peter had done what he'd done with the sword, didn't say, you know what, soldiers, I've changed my mind. Could you just take him as well? Because he's been a nightmare. No. No, he doesn't do that. He firmly tells Peter, put the sword away. I'm going to do this. I'm doing it for you. There's a cup to drink. And I will drink this cup for you. You don't need to drink it. You don't need to perform works for me, to add up your good deeds to make yourself worthy. You can't save yourself here, Peter. No, I will do that. I will make you worthy. Put your sword away. Put your works away. I will do it. This cup that Jesus is referring to is is commonly described as the the cup of God's wrath, of, of God's judgment against human sin. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, you'll see Jesus praying in Gethsemane before his arrest, and he's talking to the Father about this cup which the Father has given him to drink. 
metaphorically by sacrificing himself on the cross. And the cup is a picture taken from the Old Testament from passages like Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. The cup of God's wrath against human sin which must be drunk because God's punishment against sin has to be enacted because otherwise God would not be just. He is the only one who can judge for he alone is perfectly good and perfectly right. But sin must be dealt with. Sin must be punished. We would all say that. Sin's wages must be paid for. A price had to be paid. But in the strange and the mysterious and in the awesome mercy of God, the cup of his good, holy, and righteous wrath is given into the hands of his own beloved son. Not to God's enemies. Not to us. Not to the ones who have sinned. But to the one who committed no sin. Shall I not drink, says Jesus, the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not drink? Shall I call for heavenly reinforcement? Shall I leave the cup undrunk? Shall I leave humanity to pay for their sin? No. Jesus stands and says, no. Take me. Give me the cup. I will do it. My love for them, my love for you, no. Let them go. I will take the cup. That cup that contained the judgment and the condemnation of a holy God on every sin against God and man, we and you and I have committed. Jesus drank it so you wouldn't have to. And that question is left for Peter to ponder. Shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not be punished for your sin so that you wouldn't one day have to be? John's account moves fairly swiftly after this on into the next part of the events. Jesus is brought away. He's taken to uh, Annas and then Caiaphas, and I'm going to leave Andy to talk about them next week. But where does this leave us on this final point? Well, to the Christian in the room, I say this. You aren't on trial anymore. I think in your head, maybe you should say that to yourself. If you're a Christian here today, you are not on trial anymore. You are accepted. Jesus took your cup of judgment so that one day when you stand before God, you wouldn't be quivering and shaking. You wouldn't be unsteady on your feet like the soldiers were. No, Jesus took your cup so that on that day you and I could stand. In fact, we can stand now. If you're in Christ today, you're not on trial. There is no condemnation for you. Jesus will not lose you. And when we see God the Father, he will embrace you like a son, a friend. You're not on trial anymore. You are accepted. Jesus has left us in this passage a challenging example. He totally submitted to his Father's will. He stood firm and he faced it head on. He lived in contentment, trusting God's plan. And so my question for us is, am I? Are you? Will I? Will you trust that God is in control and you just need to take his hand? Even when the road is rough and steep, when you're met with darkness or opposition, 
We've also looked at Jesus, that he lived sacrificially. He always looked to serve. He was committed to the flourishing of all. Are we? Are our lives characterized by God's love expressed to us in Jesus Christ? Jesus, we see, also stood firm. He didn't compromise. And as our culture in this country turns increasingly against the Christian biblical worldview, will we stand or will we flee? Will we hold fast or will we compromise? As we continue to be squeezed to conform and stay silent, will we be quiet? Will we speak up, trusting that God is able to provide for us? Will we face rejection for Jesus because he did for you? Will we face arrest for Jesus because he did for you? Will we face beating, even death itself, for Jesus? Because he did for you. He did so that you one day could walk into God's presence and you wouldn't fall. You would stand and be welcomed as a son or a daughter. Jesus' calm control, his caring commitment, his cup to consume. Some summary take-home points there on the screen. This is the principles of what Jesus' life was. Staying and trusting in the Father's will. Stepping up and living sacrificially. Standing firm and uncondemned. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to sing together. And I want us just to reflect on what... uh, We've looked at this afternoon. Reflect on that promise, that truth, that we do not have a cup of wrath to drink. We only have the cup of blessing now and one day with Jesus in his kingdom. I'm just going to pray and then we're going to sing together. Let me say that Daniel and Heidi will be here at the front should you want to pray with someone after our final song. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, your mercy and your grace overwhelms us. May it overwhelm our hearts and therefore our actions. Thank you that in and because of your sacrifice we are not condemned. We are accepted in your sight. Help us to live in the light, in the beauty and in the power of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.